The Guardian. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you answer that because question? the you question is, the question is, the radical question, left, will you who shut is up, on, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? I think they think we're closed-minded, that we don't know that the issue isn't black and white, and that we still are here. The world, the world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. Throughout outbreaks, you always have disagreements about how things should be done. But we've never seen the polarization. You know, a mask wearer many times is a Democrat, and a non-mask wearer is a Republican, unfortunately. But that's what's happened. It's been highly politicized in the U.S. It's not always easy to bridge political or ideological divides. And as we've seen with the pandemic and the U.S. elections, when there's a lot at stake, things can quickly become polarized. Often, arguments with those we disagree with can go in circles, never get to the crux of the matter, or even end in name-calling. It can feel unbelievably frustrating and leave us asking, why don't they get it? Why, when presented with the same information, data, or circumstance, do our responses diverge so significantly? Why are some drawn to conservatism, others to liberalism, and even authoritarianism? How do we end up on the left or on the right? It's a difficult question, wrapped up in history, culture, and personal experience. But a new study is asking, is there something more fundamental as well? Might the way we think influence our belief systems? What we discovered was that political conservatives tended to be more cautious. So their brains opted for the more accurate but slightly slower approaches. And that really mirrors what conservatism is all about. And the minds of liberals, they looked for faster but less precise perceptual strategies. I'm Natalie Grover, and you're listening to Science Weekly. A new paper has been investigating this question of whether how we think can change what we think. So I spoke to the lead author, Dr. Leo Zimigrod, a research fellow at the University of Cambridge. The first thing I wanted to know was why she was interested in looking at the links between cognitive styles and ideologies. The literature so far has always focused on these kinds of observable characteristics, like demographic characteristics, that are easy to assess, they're easy to target. So a lot of research in the past has focused on how our upbringing shapes our political attitudes and beliefs. And we know that that's true. Context plays a huge, huge role in why we believe what we believe. But the current research program that we've started at Cambridge really looks at how our cognitive profiles, so those traits of our brains that shape how we process information, how we learn from the environment, can actually really reveal why we lean left or why we lean right, or actually, perhaps most interestingly, why some people lean towards extreme ideologies, regardless of whether they're on the left or on the right. In your study, you look at the way that our brains work and how that might explain the ideologies we, we might subscribe to. Tell us how you characterized participants' ideological orientations. Um, what sort of factors were you assessing? We were interested in really measuring a whole set 
of people's ideological attitudes, because previous research often just focuses on one domain, for instance, just political attitudes. But re we really wanted to get a comprehensive picture by analyzing people's political attitudes, asking them about their nationalistic stances, seeing what they believe in terms of religion, in terms of their dogmatism. So how receptive are they to evidence usually? How willing are they to engage with alternative perspectives? So we measured all of those things. So we had this list of 16 ideological worldviews that spanned a huge range of ideologies that people could adhere to. So those include things like authoritarianism, people's social dominance, levels of conservatism, economic conservatism, social conservatism. The way in which we measured those was basically these established batteries. So these were not tasks or surveys that we invented. These were already established in the literature. And for example, to measure authoritarianism, we ask people about their preferences with regards to how much they think that people should conform and obey versus how much they think that people in fact should be independent and kind of sensitive thinkers. Similarly, we're looking at how much people think that the status quo should be preserved versus how much they think that it should actually be overturned and revised. So we measured all of these kinds of attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors to understand people's ideological worldviews. And then you also gave participants cognitive tests. That's right. So the methodology of our study started out with actually getting participants to complete a huge battery of personality tests and neuropsychological tasks. So these kinds of cognitive tasks that tap into implicit individual differences in how we learn from the environment, how we form decisions, and how we react to changes or challenges. So actually, participants were given this huge battery that, in fact, took each participant about 10 hours to complete. So they did this over a span of two weeks. So we had lots of quality controls. And after they completed this, actually two years later, we contacted them again to look at their ideological attitudes. And that gives us a bit of a temporal dimension so that we can really see how the cognitive and personality characteristics later down the line might shape or might relate to or might underlie people's ideological beliefs. And these cognitive tasks, explain what you mean by them. What were people asked to do? They resemble kinds of what we can call brain games. So in order to perform these cognitive tasks, people were basically sitting at their computers and looking at visual shapes moving across the screen and responding to them. So we had them learn all sorts of sequences or instructions, and then we just saw how quickly, how accurately they responded to them. There's a task called a local global task, where people are seeing letters like an H on the screen, and it's composed of smaller letters. So either small H's or small O's. And we ask people, sometimes we tell them, well, just respond to the big letter that you see. And other times we tell them, just tell us what the small letter that you see is. And we look at how much interference they experience when the two letters are not the same and how successfully they do it actually when like this big H is composed of small H's as well. So we're looking at all these kinds of psychological tricks and heuristics and biases and then quantifying them according to individuals' own performance. Another example are tasks that require these kinds of complex mental simulations, and um, those can involve, uh, for instance, memorizing a series of shapes uh, and then 
recalling them in a particular order. They might involve planning how you would build a certain kind of visual um, construction. So these are all kinds of tasks that, as you can see, are really politically neutral and really tap into the neuropsychological processes of the individual. From that, we can extract all kinds of interesting information about how they're perceiving and how quickly they can kind of incorporate and learn evidence from the task. So when they perceive those visual stimuli, how quickly do they turn that into a decision? And so now you have the results from the personality um, and ideological assessments um, along with the cognitive tests. What happens next? From our understanding of kind of the neuropsychological characteristics of the individual and their personality traits, we can start to create these kinds of psychological signatures or these psychological profiles of all the different ideological worldviews that we examine. Give us an example of a psychological signature. An example of psychological signature that a lot of people have been really interested in is the kind of the extremist mind. So what makes an individual more prone to engage in ideological violence for their cause? And importantly, this actually is relevant to people both on the left and the right. So here, this spans the whole political spectrum. And we find that individuals with extremist attitudes tend to perform poorly on all of those complex mental tasks where they need to kind of perform all these intricate mental steps. And we also find that they're cognitively rigid. So when we give them these tasks that require them to perform flexibly to adapt to changing rules and behaviors, and again, these are in tasks that are really perceptual, neuropsychological, so very much neutral. So we find that people who are extreme, either in terms of how much they're willing to commit to violence or extreme in their partisan identities, they tend to be a lot more cognitively rigid on our neuropsychological tasks relative to people who are moderate. So we're starting to paint this picture of what the cognitive image of an extremist mind can look like. Give us a quick summary now of the psychological signature um, that defines somebody who's um, conservative versus somebody who's liberal. One of the important things to remember when we're looking at the psychology of political conservatism and political liberalism is that there are both what we call ideological symmetries. So those are things that we find commonly on both sides, perhaps most commonly on the extreme left and the extreme right, who can be really cognitively similar. And there are what we call ideological asymmetries, so ways in which political conservatives and political liberals differ. One of the fascinating things that we've looked at in this study is people's kind of cognitive caution. So when they're performing tasks that require them to respond really quickly and really accurately, we can look at that trade-off. And for each individual, we know that some people will tend towards kind of slow and steady mental strategies, and others will opt for more fast and furious strategies. Neither is better. It's just a slightly different way of engaging with perceptual information. And what we discovered was that political conservatives tended to be more cautious. So their brains opted for the more accurate but slightly slower approaches. And that really mirrors what conservatism is all about. And the minds of liberals and political liberals and others who really are trying to revise the status quo, they looked for faster but less precise perceptual strategies. So again, there is no better or worse. These are just slightly different mental strategies that we see in individuals of different ideological persuasion. Is there a way 
to change this. So if I am somebody who tends to be rigid in in the way that I think the world should work or, uh, you know, about politics, for instance, what does the study tell you about how to change that? Or if you wanted to try and adjust somebody's worldview, how would you go about doing that? There's a really interesting tension in this literature where on one hand, we're looking at somewhat stable individual differences in cognition, but also at the same time, we know that a lot of these psychological traits are malleable, so they can be changed, they can be enhanced. So we do have all sorts of trainings that make you more flexible. I mean, actually, probably critical thinking, high standards of education probably help in that way in any case. There are definitely all sorts of psychological ways in which we can enhance people's emotion regulation skills, we can enhance their cognitive flexibility. And so that really means that we can use this research to help people overcome their kind of vulnerability to extremist ideologies. Throughout our lives, we're told that we're we're a product of our genetics and our environment. How much would you say that our cognitive abilities form the basis of our views? And presumably the way that we've been brought up has an impact as well. So are you able to sort of say that ideological worldviews are driven directly or caused by cognitive abilities, or is there room for other things? In this newly developed field that the study is situated in called political neuroscience, there's actually a, a really common problem or really common question, which is called the chicken and egg problem. And that's the question of what comes first, right? And that's really difficult to know because a lot of times we take these kinds of snapshot studies where we have a, we're seeing a particular moment in time of the relationship between people's ideology and the, their kind of cognition or brain function. And then from that, we're trying to extrapolate what came first, what is the causal structure of this kind of link. It's always hard. And we know that on one hand, these cognitive traits are to some degree genetically determined, but we also know that they're malleable and susceptible to environmental influences. So it's really challenging. And actually, probably some of the best research to really disentangle this is some of the work that I've been working on and other people have been working on using longitudinal studies, where then we can start to track people over time and see how their cognition and ideological attitudes change and kind of seeing that in a neurobiological context and in the context of understanding their upbringing, their environment, and how those might shape their psychological functioning in turn. Are you able to say uh, at this point whether what the chicken is and what the egg is? <laughs> That's the million dollar question, isn't it? It's important to recognize that whatever we find, it is likely that it's going to be a bidirectional relationship. So our cognitive traits influence the kind of ideologies that we're drawn to. And at the same time, when we immerse ourselves in highly ideological environments, that then has an impact on cognition. So important to remember that these bidirectional links are are always going to be there. So it's always going to be difficult to disentangle which is the chicken, which is the egg. Could your findings help us argue with each other better? I think it can. And actually, there is research suggesting that research about the cognitive and biological roots of ideologies actually makes people more compassionate. There's really fascinating research showing that when we understand that it's just a little bit about the way in which we process information from the world and our kind of cognitive and neurobiological dispositions, 
people are more understanding of each other because I think it's easy to demonize the other side, whichever side that is. But when we understand that actually this is coming from a place of kind of different psychological approaches to the world, different ways of perceiving, different ways of learning information, then we're more compassionate and maybe we can reframe some issues so that they have more universal appeal. So definitely, I think that we can look at this research and find ways in which we can engage with each other in in a more tolerant and open-minded way. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Lior. Thank you very much. Thanks to Dr. Lior Zemikroth for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us at the podcast, do email in at scienceweekly at theguardian.com. You can also find the article I wrote about Lior's paper on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. That's it for today. See you next week. And until then, as always, stay safe. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.